old uh, steam machines in particular needed governors because uh, they tended to blow up if they didn't have a governor that would keep the steam pressure down. And that can also warn us of what can happen to a national government if the head of state isn't interested in tamping down excessive pressures. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryans, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. There's a lot of talk about politics in the air uh, for some reason. Uh, <laughs> this year, especially, I've noticed since Trump was elected here in the United States, everybody's interest is peaked in government and how government works and all of these things that you drew up a list of terms that are related to politics and government and i think it's worth talking about some of these words a couple of them you have entries in the book on um one has to do with the state that you live in right washington uh, when I read the newspaper or listening to the news on the radio, I always get just a little twinge when people say, well, a news from Washington today. And I know they're talking about our nation's capital, but, you know, that's Washington, D.C. We're we're Washington. <laughs> I was reminded of this the other day when uh, I got the news that Brian Aldiss, science fiction writer, had died. And he's somebody that I knew personally, I didn't have a really close acquaintance with, but when I was doing my nuclear ore research, I had finished my book and I saw that he was going to be a guest speaker at a conference. I was going to a science fiction conference in Florida. So I wrote him and said, uh, would you mind if I brought along a copy of my manuscript uh, looking it over and giving me some feedback on it? Because he had written some things that related to nuclear war. And it was, uh, in my opinion, one of the greatest of science fiction writers. And he said, sure. He lived in Oxford in England and said, by the way, um, would you mind looking up a few things for me in the Library of Congress on your way? <laughs> And I had to tell him, I don't live in that Washington. <laughs> and when I met him, um, I gave him the manuscript. He was very polite. We had a little private meeting. And uh, then he said, well, I thought I would share with you the manuscript of my next book, which is being published soon. And it turned about to be Heliconia Winter, in which he had been, had been writing this trilogy about a planet which has... Uh, seasons that last for thousands of years and evolution has developed in response to this in some very interesting ways but as he was preparing to write the third book heliconia winter the research about nuclear winter came out and he decided to incorporate a reference to that in the book so it qualified for my book which was really interesting so anyway i felt quite flattered that this guy wants me to look at his writing before it's published and i said is there anything you would especially like me to respond to or look for he said yes admire the beauty of the prose <laughs> <laughs> that's the kind of uh editing that we all could live with, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, writers almost always have big egos, and, yeah. but he also had a great sense of humor. He was sure. Wonderful. I visited him again a bit later in uh, in his home in Oxford with my daughter when we were traveling, and had a great time with him. So he he was a, 
a great writer, but he never got the recognition he deserved, I feel. Although he was recognized as an important historian of science fiction, he's the one that developed the thesis that uh, Mary Shelley was the inventor of science, science fiction in writing Frankenstein. But he was very restless and experimental, except for Heliconia Winter. He really shunned sequels, and he would write something different every time he did it. it was some, some of his novels were very experimental. But you would like one and think, well, this is pretty neat. I'll see what else he's written. And you pick something else up, and likely it would be so different that you wouldn't care for it. So he never developed the following that he might have had. Although in person, he was so charming and very flirtatious with women, uh, by the way. And he always had a lot of people hanging around that enjoyed talking to him that knew him personally. Never received the big public acclaim that I thought he deserved. Anyway, so Washington. And the thing that I talked about in the book was the mispronunciation Washington, putting the R in there. Um, my mother, who was from Oklahoma, uh, always said Washington and wash the clothes and so on. Uh, it's still around, although not as common, I think, as it used to be. No, but I did grow up thinking that uh, it was Washington and you washed the clothes myself. However, my mother's not from Oklahoma. My mother's from Woodland, California. Uh-huh. Now, why would that be? Would that be because Woodland, California is out in the Central Valley in, Cal- in oh, California? Yeah. <laughs> A lot of Okies settled there. A lot of Okies settled in the Central Valley, and I wonder if there was a creeping... um, I wonder if it is an Oklahoma thing, that extra R that gets thrown in. And we also know it from uh, British English, too, uh, certain areas where they uh, have an extra R. Now, the Beatles do this in their recording of Till There Was You from The Music Man. Um, There were stars up above but i never saw them shining <laughs> so there's a little extra r yeah. you of course have to live with hearing newscasters constantly saying oregon right that's true and there's a steely dan song don't take me alive i crossed my old man back in oregon don't take me alive that's the way they sing it we're having to live with that and that's recorded history but i i notice it i think i notice it less and less Maybe that's got to do with the popularity of Portland. Portland's become a very trendy city. Well, I, I can't see that Nevada has diminished any. No? Okay, we, we should, we're going to talk about government, right? Well, we are, yeah. And um, Washington is merely the center of the United States government. But what about this word government? Where does it come from? Let's talk a little bit about that. Well, it's uh, a French word, a gouvernement. Um, which means to exercise political power over or have charge over or supervision of something. It doesn't have to be a nation. It could be something as simple as a child um, or a town or something else. So you can govern a lot of things. But very early, it also meant to steer a ship. So you govern the ship by telling it where to go. And we often speak today of a leader steering the ship of state. So I guess it survives a little bit in that way. But by the 14th centuries, it also had more protective associations. And when I quote uh, definitions, they're almost always coming from the Oxford English Dictionary online. Um, And this is no exception. To oversee or have responsibility for a person, especially a child, to be the guardian or patron of, to keep safe, 
protect. So steering a child in the way it should go is being a governor, and that's uh, the action is government. And, of course, we know that a woman who cared for and educated children was called a governess. Sure. So governments can be seen as either oppressive or protective. So it depends on uh, how you're looking at it at a particular time or what your views are. So a lot of political debate stems from disagreements about the appropriate balance between these functions. How much should government seek to punish and control and steer and how much should it be uh, engaged in protecting and upholding and caring for. Um, interestingly, those cross political lines. I mean, conservatives will say, yes, it should protect us with the military, but not protect us against uh, health expenses, for instance. And the liberals might say, yes, it should care for us, but it should keep hands off when we want to indulge in free speech and, uh, and not steer us away from drugs uh, as much as the conservatives want. So uh, it's an interesting variety of, of tension going on. Of course, you always have to listen to the libertarians because so many of us just perceive them as so far out there. But they're always putting forth this idea that there should be no government whatsoever. So we're going to just operate with no system of government whatsoever. However, uh, we have had that in history, right? I mean, isn't isn't government the result of having no government? I think libertarians usually still want a minimum of government. They they usually do want defense forces to keep other countries from invading us. Right. Well, there there is an anarcho-libertarian uh, element out there too. Yeah. Um, okay. That's an extreme wing. Um, so I want to talk about libertarians quite a bit later. Sure. But I'm just pointing out that government does arrive from having no government. And this is what we're always fighting over is then then what is government? And there are lots of examples left and right where people can point to and say, you know, look at what the government does. And from the left, the critique is the problem with government is not government itself, but the corporate control of government. And uh, from the right, it tends to be. Well, the problem with government is that uh, it tries to control the corporations. That's certainly a current. Yeah, dispute, there's this it? back and forth about what industry and business has to do with government. And very often, I think we, the people who think we are the government, feel left out of this argument. Yeah, and there's been a, a development in recent decades, many commentators have pointed out, that's been exacerbated by the recent election of uh, people not thinking of we the people as the government anymore. The Republicans campaigned for so many decades against the government and saying, you know, here it's, there's the people and then there's the government. That whole notion we used to get in the civics class that the government is not only our representative, but it is us it's it's our creation that's get gotten harder and harder to convince people of on both left and right and i think that's a real loss it is i completely agree we are not supposed to be operating this way in this country where the government is outside of some separate entity that suppresses us <laughs> We are supposed to be in control of it. When the police officer pulls you over because you are speeding, even at that level, um, this police officer is actually working for you. 
helping helping theoretically to keep the roads safe for people like you. And of course, if you're black, that can be a very hard distinction to make true and get stopped by the police and get shot as a result. And people who work within government, um, I think, can adopt the attitude that they are not in that position of working for the people. But uh, just to talk about the word government, you talk about the origin, having the M-E-N-T attached to it, the government, but these days uh, that would strictly be related to politics, right? I mean, you you wouldn't say um, a governess that's employed has government over your children. Right, and there are some other uses that are connected with this loosely in British slang. A governor could be your father, or your boss. So we, we use the form of address settings. Okay, governor, I'll do it right away. Mm-hmm. It became common enough to be used as an informal but respectful form of address to a person who had no defined relationship to the speaker. So uh, you're talking to somebody behind a desk somewhere that you've never met before, and he says, uh, well, we'd like you to fill out this form. You'd say, right, you are governor. <laughs> you you mm-hmm. could say that. There's certain dialects in British speak, not something that Americans ever adopted, but I, I see it occasionally in movies and on British TV, but I think it's a little bit antiquated by now. And of course, uh, if you're into machinery and so on, you know that a governor in an engine regulates the speed of the machine by automatically controlling the flow of water, air, fuel. And old uh, steam machines in particular needed governors because uh, they tended to blow up if they didn't have a governor that would keep the steam pressure down. And that can also warn us of what can happen to a national government if the head of state isn't interested in tamping down excessive pressures. I'm afraid our president isn't being a very good governor in that sense. Yeah. And I remember when I was young, cars used to have governors that would limit your speed. Oh, right. Right. You could set your car so that it would not exceed a certain speed. Well, and with self-driving cars, we may be headed back into that era. Well, self-driving cars would have all kinds of governors all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> we can't forget that government is actually an item in the in the in the book. Common errors in English usage has an entry for government. It's very short. Yeah. It's not. It's not. Uh, we've expounded on the term here. I'm talking about other things, but uh, what is that entry? It's don't forget the end. Yeah, and if when, you go back and listen to us saying the word just a few minutes ago, you'll find mm. a few occasions where we said government, and <laughs> I think that's pretty standard. But if you want to be really clear, get the government, government, it's a little clumsy to say actually that way, but if you're spelling it in particular, of course. Now, I don't know about you, but I do always say the N. It melds so quickly into the M that uh, I'm sure it doesn't come off that way. Right. And I, but it, there's something different about saying government and government. Yeah. And it's subtle, but I am saying the N when I do say the word, but I'm sure it sounds like I'm not saying an N in there. And that's kind of come to be, that's how I perceive the correct pronunciation. Right. But of course, when you're spelling it, by all means, don't forget that there's an N. And, of course, if you say gummant, you sound like uh, Huck Finn's pap. Right. Exactly. Well, we're talking about big terms. Government. Let's move on to politics. That's the big umbrella of the conversation, too. So what about this word? Where does it come from? Well, it comes from the Greek polis, which was a city. Some of them were quite large and like cities that we have today, but uh, many of them were were rather small towns. Um, Aristotle wrote a treatise called Politics. 
And that's where the word really enters into usage later and, and had a lot of influence. At first, it meant the theory and practice of governing. Uh, but in a modern democratic politics, it usually refers to the pursuit of or acquisition of power or attempts to hold on to power. And usually people will contrast mere politics with actual governing. So politics has gotten to being more the preparing to govern and less governing. And that's a modern evolution. Politicians are always accusing each other of acting or speaking according to purely political considerations and you know, de denouncing what they're doing because this is just mere politics where, of course, they are carrying out high-minded policy, which is altogether different. And th this can be hilarious sometimes because both sides accuse each other of politics all the time, and, and that's what they're mostly about. Right. See, we talked about the origins of the word idiot. Uh, in in a previous podcast and i'm going to get back to politics in just a second but i'm seeing a link here between that word and um this origin story of the the polis and aristotle's idea of politics um so originally this would be an engaged citizen not necessarily a leader right this would be just a person who lives in a city uh and a is citizen, part of the yeah, yeah. yeah a citizen of the city and um, uh, when we talked about idiot, we talked about these were people who did not operate in that realm. They were people who were uh, just out on their own, complete uh, rogue elements in in this society. And that's where we get the word idiot from. But this idea of a politician should contrast with that. Um, but, of course, we don't use the word politics that way or politician that way anymore except we do uh, refer to some politicians as idiots <laughs> true yeah that's common <laughs> so a slangy variation on, on politics is politicking as mm -hmm. uh, an activity that people engage in and it dates from the late 19th century it's mainly used in, in america and the u.s uh, it's slangy it's humorous a uh, slightly critical term to label uh, political activity particularly campaigning for office when you say somebody's been politicking i usually wouldn't use that if you really hate what the person's doing uh, nor if you really love what they're doing it would be somewhere in between just uh, slightly disdainful or amused uh well he's about politicking in iowa again and then there's to politicize an issue yes and this is uh, definitely an insult and now in earlier usage it meant to engage in or talk about politics or to make someone politically aware or active so it could be very positive well he managed to politicize the entire neighborhood and they all went out and voted mm. but uh, today its main usage is to take an issue which should be treated objectively and warp it by advocating courses of action that will gain votes rather than voting for what you really think is best for people uh, just what will move people to vote for you in the next election and republicans and democrats in congress constantly accuse each other of politicizing serious issues and uh, this is something the public is keenly aware of and that's one of the reasons they have such a low opinion of congress 
And of course, Congress exacerbates it by accusing each other of of doing it all the time. So even if the press and columnists and letter writers and so on didn't accuse Congress of, of excessive politicization of issues, uh, Congress does the job for them. You'll politicize that. That brings to mind for me this politically correct language, where terms that could be or even should be neutral, especially areas involving race or gender issues. These words get charged with uh, meaning and, oh, you have a political agenda because you won't call a woman a gal (laughs) or something like that, right? I mean, you're politicizing the issue, but these should be neutral, really. They shouldn't be so politically charged, at least in my mind. And then there's this opposite effect where somebody tries to be slanderous by employing a, a, a negative term we talked about this before we talked about yankee doodle yeah. um and punks right where the people say all right well fine you're going to call me that i'm going to adopt this term and i'm going to throw it right back at you we're going to take away the politically charged element of this term just by adopting it and saying okay forget it if that's what you're going to call me uh, you're going to call me queer i'm queer and now we have queer rights and queer studies and queer studies. And it has a way of neutralizing that effect. But that's why when I think about politicize, I think there's an element of politically correct speech that you have to throw in there, too. Well, the women's movement, of course, introduced the notion that the private is political and um, it's redefined politics. And the problem is that people on the left and liberals generally um Except that notion that uh, a lot of these things, identity politics and so on, are part of politics, whereas on the right, people tend to draw a bright line between governmental politics and these social politics. And it's one of many instances, I'm not saying one is right and the other is wrong, it's that they misunderstand each other when they talk about politics because they have different notions of what politics should be. That's at the root of a lot of our problems. You know, it's not a problem that people like us who are talking about language can solve. We can't say, well, the true definition of politics is X, Y, Z. There isn't a true definition. There are just different definitions that different groups use. I wanted to comment, by the way, that... uh, These politicians in office who are constantly accusing each other of politicizing things, I think that's a very feeble accusation. I don't think it impresses anybody because the public is thoroughly convinced that they are doing this all the time. That's almost the definition of a statesman. (laughs) No statesman anywhere, stateswomen. They're they're all politicians and they're politicking all the time and they politicize things. So uh, it just makes things worse for Republicans and Democrats to cast aspersions on each other this way, people just shrug and say, oh, yeah, so what else is new? It undercuts the notion that it could be a topic for discussion or debate uh, if you just say, well, you're just politicizing the issue. Well, it's an issue. (laughs) Every issue on some sets could be discussed and debated. To say you're politicizing an issue is an attempt to dismiss it as you say just throw it off of hand and there's a little bit of elitism lurking in back of that and if you think about it if somebody's politicizing an issue they're doing it because they think that their position that they're taking is popular with the voting public but after all that's what democracy is supposed to be about is getting what the public 
once done, done. Now, uh, there are many instances, of course, where the public gets swept up in its passions and doesn't uh, always do what's best for itself and where issues can be complex so that the public doesn't really grasp what's involved in them. In those cases, sometimes a representative has to rise above politics and advocate something that's uh, not politically popular. So in in fact, not politicizing an issue is something that uh, they're called on sometimes to do, and they recognize that. And that's in the background of their mind when they're saying you're just politicizing an issue because they know there are times when there are issues where it is better for the country if they ignore the popular passions and go with something that's more reasonable or long lasting or fairer or constitutional. So um, that's when the, what's in the back of their minds when they say you're politicizing things. But even if people understood what they were getting at and paid attention to it seriously, that would just make them think, hey, why are they ignoring me? Uh, of course, he's politicizing things. That's that's what he ought to be doing. So I, I think it's it would be better for everybody all around if they would just stop this practice of accusing each other of politicization. Well, that's a very astute observation. And that's a very astute observation you made earlier about identity politics and social politics and how those are viewed from the left and the right uh, differently. That's really spot on what you said about that. Well, there's a number of Democratic critics who have lately been saying that identity politics isn't a losing issue for the Democrats and that they need to move away from it. There's a, a new book out on that, and it's it's in the news a great deal lately, and that's a passionate issue because there are people who feel really strongly on both sides in the Democratic Party, and I think that's going to be a big challenge to them to unite and try to pull together to take back Congress or the White House is how do you manage to take care of your constituency that really cares passionately about identity politics and the ones who say this is the death wish <laughs> that, that you lose the middle when you emphasize identity politics. I don't see a, an easy way out of that. Yeah, it's a tricky path. There's every possibility of alienating all kinds of people, no matter what you do. It may end up being that it just takes a special person or a special group of people who can uh, somehow get people unified. There's a lot of problems with having a person who is charismatic and just one person. But that may be the kind of thing that we're looking for to get out of this. Is it a quagmire or <laughs> this dilemma? Uh, a slew of despond. Yeah. Okay. Pilgrim's Progress. Yeah. Now, you're making all kinds of astute observations about this, and, and I want to get to more astute observations as we move through to talk about different forms of government. But I don't think we're going to have time to talk about that this time. I think we need to save that uh, for later and uh, wrap this up. We talked about politics. We talked about government. We talked a little bit about Washington, or is it Washington? I'm not sure. <laughs> Um, but but uh, this has been an interesting conversation. It promises to be even more interesting, I think, as we get through and talk about some of these different forms of uh, that government can take. We are really going to get thick into the weeds talking about some of these words, feudalism, fiefdom, democracy, and so on. But let's save that for next time. Okay. Thank you, Paul. So long, Tom. 
That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The Common Errors in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website, wmjasco.com, with free shipping. Thanks for listening.